1: Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC.
2: Hey folks, this is Martin Popoff, author of 70 books on hard rock and heavy metal. I know it's a sad existence. You are listening to Talking Metal.
3: Welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal podcast, home of all things hard rock and heavy metal. I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. Now, let's get things started with the Talking Metal theme song, written by Rob Halford, Metal Mike, and Roy Z. <laughs> Striegel of the Talking Metal Podcast. We have a great show for you today. This is a really special show. We have Martin Popoff back on the show for the first time in a long time. He was on two or three times well, back, I would say, oh, well, had to be six, seven years ago at this point, and delivered some great episodes that the listeners always loved. And it's been far too long uh, for him to have been away from the podcast. And I'm so psyched that he's back here to talk about one of our favorite bands, Motorhead. We're going to be focusing for the most part on the early Motorhead, the Fast Eddie Clark, Filthy Animal, Lemmy Kilmister lineup, the original three, if you will, who delivered us those great great records that have just held the test of time. And Martin has a new book out which he's going to tell us all about that focuses on this era of Motorhead. It's a just wonderful read. For anybody who loves to dive into what what went on when they made these records what went on in great detail within the band the dynamics of the band I mean it's all there you know the 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 rise of this band and the internal workings of the band is it's all there in Martin's new book which again it's going to tell us all about the book. It's a link through today's show notes. If you go to talkingmetal.com for the show notes of six, seven, eight, 678 episodes, folks. That's a lot. Um, we have we have the, the show notes up, and you can check it out there. And uh, yeah, and you can buy it by linking with our show notes. We prefer you to do that. Catch up with with us. Catch up with us at the rock and pod expo in nashville on august 26 we hope to see you there go make a donation to the rock and pod GoFundMe page i don't get any of that money it's just helping put on the event it would mean a lot to me if you made a donation and when you made the donation you mentioned that you're a talking metal listener even if it's a five dollar donation that would be great and we'll have that linked it's gofundme.com slash rock the letter n Pod Expo. And again, we'll have that link through today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. So uh, after Martin, by the way, the Lemmy stories continue because we have Pin Doll on and this is a guy who has a band called Barbwire Wire Dolls. They're kind of a punk band, you know, but I think metalheads will like them. And Lemmy signed this band to his his Motorhead label and he was friends with these guys right up until he, he passed on. So uh, there's some, Pin had some great stories. I was very impressed with with the interview. If you're into the Eagles of Death Death Metal, which, you know, is not a a, a metal band, as we all know, but it's a cool band. I, I like them a lot. And an incredible story with what went on in Paris uh, a couple of years ago with them and uh so we hear from we pin tells us a little bit about his relationship with those guys too so it's it's a really fascinating listen so after the martin pop-off uh interview stay tuned for an interview with pin doll from Barb wire dolls and check out their new music we'll talk about that during uh the interview with pin uh make a paypal donation keep us going here keep us afloat paypal donations have been really thin lately i would love a paypal donation It would be great. My PayPal account is strigelmark at gmail.com S-T-R-I-G-L-M-A-R-K at gmail.com Leave us a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate that. Go to the comments section on TalkingMetal.com and let us know what you think of this episode, what you think of the news stories we're posting. Visit TalkingMetal.com. That's a great way to support the site. And uh, we may have a sponsor coming up. Every now and again, we get advertisers, sponsors. If If that happens for us, you know, I don't make, I make literally like 30 to 40 bucks an episode when we have a sponsor, but that's more than I usually make with the donations and stuff. So when we do get the sponsor, go support them it's very important and uh they they usually track the traffic we're sending them with codes and stuff like that so uh stay tuned for that i hope it hope it comes comes a uh, a reality this sponsor uh, and on that note oh one other thing leave us a message on the hotline it's 973 757 1917 973 757 one nine one seven. Leave us a message today. Let me know what you thought of this episode or whatever. Let's uh, let's talk some metal. Leave me a message. You know I play him on the podcast. And without further ado, here is Martin Popoff with some great talk about Motorhead and rock and roll in general, heavy metal in general. Hey, it's Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and on the line a guy we haven't spoken with in in quite some time, Martin Popoff. Martin,
2: how are you? Hey, I'm doing fine. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
3: Yeah, I'm glad you're back on with us. Uh, we have a great new book by you, Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers, The Rise of Motorhead by Martin Popoff. And I want to just go right into this right now. I mean, there's, there's so much great stuff in this, but it's primarily about the rise of Motorhead. It is, we're, we're talking mo- mostly about Phil Taylor, Eddie Clark, fast Eddie Clark, and Lemmy, and those first what four i think f- f- four studio records, right, five studio records
2: five in a live album, yeah, yeah, yep, absolutely
3: so I want to get into those but but first, just you you cover a lot of the prehistory of these three guys leading up to the great motorhead let's uh, let's talk about Lemmy, we always hear that he was Hendrix's. Guitar roadie, and from your book, I kind of got a slightly different picture <laughs> as to what he did with yeah. with Hendrix. Uh, he technically wasn't on tune on stage tuning up guitars or or carrying guitars around, was he?
2: No, and and it's interesting. You 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 know you mentioned this sort of prehistory because I'm thinking, oh man, Mark's asking about the prehistory. I'm thinking, Fast City Clark had barely any prehistory, and, right. and Phil had barely any prehistory, so Lemmy has a strange prehistory. I mean, he he starts getting into rock and roll in the late 50s, actually, and uh, you know, one of the heartbreaking things about Lemmy, I mean, later on he says he had all his records stolen, and he had all these, these rock and roll records stolen, or whatever, but so, so he just works his way through all that garage rock era, and then he gets on with this Sam Gopal guy, and they do this crazy album, and, and yeah, he's, he's like sort of loitering around almost squatting around you know and just hanging around and doing drugs and selling drugs and all that stuff and he right. gets in with Jimmy and and you know it's it's acid this and acid that but yeah you, you kind of get the feeling that there's a little bit of like like probably like some myth making that went on with what Lemmy actually did and he he essentially seemed like he was like, like a roadie but who knows if he was all that paid and, and, and it wasn't like a regular official gig kind of thing but, but But he definitely hung around with Jimmy and did a lot of acid with Jimmy. Kind of almost um, but, part but, yeah, of the
3: entourage, was, maybe you know. Gym, yeah,
2: yeah, he was not a guitar tech, but you know, he's he, you know, he, he's a pretty imposing looking guy. You you wonder if he's probably serves a little bit of a security role as well. Right. Um, you know, with his with his laconic sense of humor and whatnot, but uh, quite a colorful past. And and then of course he goes into Hawkwind, and and he's like this legendary dude in Hawkwind. You know, yeah. crazy drug band, and 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 he's the bassist, right? and he's... Yes, yeah, so, well psychedelic and you know what the, what they call Hawkwind is blanga sometimes which okay. is which is almost like this this crazy critically mass moving forward noisy space rock right. stuff right um so post psych i suppose and and you know he's in there um sort of critically in that in that classic Hawkwind period of 72 to 74 sort of thing and then uh and then yeah he's he's basically trying to get into Canada Hawkwind's on tour in the states right. and he gets busted for drugs and he gets sort of unceremoniously um kicked out of the band because he's more of a liability at that point right. so he gets he gets spiteful and uh and like I'll show all you guys uh kind of kind of like david with the solo career and uh and decides uh you know i'm i'm gonna make the make the the most badass band you can imagine and and hence we have motorhead right so Let's let's just back up just a little bit. Now, he was a
3: guitar player, essentially, and joined Hawkwind without possibly ever having played bass before. And a a lot of that, that sound that later becomes Motorhead is in part that he is a guitar player playing bass unlike any other bass player. Is that? Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, that's a good point, and you know, I'm, I have to tread a little lightly because I'm I'm doing this a little bit from memory, but yeah, there was the whole idea that he just sort of like like became the bassist because the bass was left behind, kind of thing. Right. Yep. And and yeah, so so generally. Um, yeah what we get out of Lemmy, i guess the most important part of the story is that is that he does end up with this sound and and he sticks with this sound where where it's this uh as he described it to me once um you know turn turn the bass right up off, turn the treble right up kind of thing right yeah. um and it and it becomes almost like this rhythm guitar sound um That goes through it, and and Eddie, throughout the book, talks about how it was so difficult to locate his guitar within this when there's really no bass player. It's it's essentially, this band has two rhythm guitar players and a drummer. And it's funny, the vocalist, you know, I I was thinking about this the, uh, the other day, as his voice got gruffer and gruffer, and and he got sort of less articulate over the years. His voice almost became like a third rhythm guitar yeah, in that that's true. Band. I never thought of uh, you yeah. know, yeah, it's it's kind of funny. It and but you know and and so and so yeah, you can you can uh, understand the challenges Eddie talks about in his in his charming way throughout the book. Yeah, about trying to find a, a place to put his guitar in all this mess.
3: And I definitely want to talk more about that specific thing and 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 Eddie Clark, but the song motorhead predates the band motorhead. And while we're still kind of on this, this Hawkwind era, uh, chat here, can you tell us a little bit about the actual song motorhead?
2: Yeah. So there's this song and it, it becomes the penultimate song and he names it after it. it's kind of like a little bit of the old black Sabbath, black Sabbath, Van Halen, Van Halen record. So good. We had to name it twice kind of thing. And, uh, so this song carries forward and it becomes the name of the album the name of the band and you know as you know Wings at song. Yeah, and at that 1977 juncture, um, you know, it's not even the most heavy metal song really on that album. It's almost like a, a floundering around punk song in a way and, yeah. and done in that sort of, uh, you know, bad production on purpose sound that you get on that record, you know, part on purpose, part just because of speed and just doing it all through the night kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's a song that probably, you know, it it becomes sort of a a classic, but but it's a but it's a little bit of a uh, almost like a silly chopped at the knees sort of song. It's it's yeah. not that great. It's it's almost like a a slightly too melodic punk song.
3: Gotcha. And did he did he sing this? That I mean, he was the bassist in Hawkwind, but did he sing on that song when when he was in Hawkwind?
2: I believe so you're yeah. testing my memory again right. here yeah. I'm not I'm not quite sure I I, I, think, I don't quite remember I um, think all this I say believe
3: there so. might be two Hawkwind versions of it I think one where he sings it and one where he doesn't or something like that
2: yeah it's a little it's complicated, complicated. The there's Lost Johnny as well and then and then there's like a single version and then uh, of, of I believe of this and then maybe an album version does that ring a bell yeah um, I believe I believe that's how this this sort of transition takes place
3: cool and we are talking with Martin Popoff. He is uh, the author of Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers, The Rise of Motorhead, which deals with that potent era of Phil Filthy Animal Taylor, Fast Eddie Clark, and of course, Lemmy Kilmeister as that three piece that gave us all that original Motorhead stuff. Now, you know, as a kid, I, I was pretty, I was a young kid and I was getting into to hard rock and heavy metal, pretty, pretty hardcore at a very young age. And at at that time in the early 80s, you know, maybe even mid 80s, 83, 84, when I discovered Motorhead, it was obviously through the Ace of Spades record, which was a really big record here in the States. But unlike a lot of the other bands I was discovering, I, I, it was very hard for me at that time to go back and figure out what the heck came first, because there was a, all sorts of EPs and singles and strange records, you know, that, that predated overkill. And it was all very confusing pre internet to try to figure out what was the first motorhead record. And in your book, you shed some light on that. They kind of had two first records.
2: Yes. Um, so, so essentially, when it came to the albums, which is kind of the most important thing, they, they, they get on with UA, United Artists, and they, and they do this stuff, and, and it, it kind of crashes in flames. It doesn't happen. And, and, it's a and so they lineup, go over right? to Chiswick. Yeah. Um, Fast Eddie's not there uh Larry Wallace is there right uh, and and then also there's some complication with with Phil as as a drummer um so essentially what happens is um you know the clean start becomes the Chiswick album, the notorious classic Motorhead album, the, the Lo-Fi on Purpose album. But when they start to make it in the UK, because let's let's face it, I mean they aren't making it anywhere else because you know none of these records are getting released in the U.S. or Canada or any of that stuff. When they start to make it, UA um, puts out um, as part of their On Parole or, or rock file series, they put out Motorhead On Parole, so it has the these versions... Of uh, of you know half of its kind of versions of songs that are off the Motorhead album and the production is actually better. I mean it's more conventional production, but but that comes later and that confuses everybody. Kind of like the whole ACDC you know Dirty Deeds and I know you helped me with my ACDC book right. that was so cool. Um, that's uh, that's that's a little bit of news. That's that's actually not out yet. It's probably not even announced on on Amazon yet. But there's an ACDC book that Mark uh, was a contributor in. Yeah, um, honored to be a part. But of it. basically. Yeah, so that's coming out in the fall. Um, but yeah, I mean the the whole Motorhead, the on parole and all that thing reminds me of that that whole that right. whole dirty so, deeds under so, cheap story, right?
3: Yeah, so they put out they put out the Motorhead the self titled record, which is yeah. essentially and again on this record are are the are the three Phil Eddie and Lemmy, but it's essentially songs that are from the past that Eddie wasn't. Involved with creating, and for the most part, Phil wasn't involved with creating these songs. A lot, most of the songs were on this other record that they recorded, which had been shelved, but then the label releases it after mo- the Motorhead Motorhead record starts taking off. So, yes
2: and it and it's basically you know it's it, it's a little more covers related it's a little more traditionally conservatively recorded so in a certain way it's not as intense as the motorhead thing it doesn't have the same storyline that motorhead miraculously i don't know how they did this but between motorhead you know uh transitioning into overkill and bomber they do maintain this this ethic of this of this dirty on purpose biker rock greaser rock sound um so yeah it it just becomes a thorn in his side and and it becomes another one of these things that makes lemmy you know a cynic all through his life about the business
3: right so the three guys the motorhead record is out on parole is out But but the three guys as a unit, as a trio for the first time, really start working together on writing and creating music for their next record, which in some ways, if you want to look at it, you know, through a different pair of glasses, it's it's probably truly the first motorhead record. And it's called Overkill. Do you agree with that?
2: Yes, I do. Uh, I I really think that that's where, um, you know, everything's solidified and, and, you know, arguably... you know they never make a better record uh, right. in 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 a certain in a certain sense. I mean, Ace of Spades is always considered the great Motorhead record, and and actually, you know, Bomber is considered a little bit of a setback uh, compared to Overkill. But right. everything comes together, you know, in in absolutely fine fashion in Overkill. I remember buying that album as a new release in in one of our famous uh, you know hook out of school. Let's drive down to Spokane, Washington, from my small town of Trail, BC, and uh, and go. By imports. Um, And I remember just flipping through the racks, flip, flip, flip through, you know, to the M's, and all of a sudden, you know, Motorhead as this black and white, dour, you know, punky, simple thing just explodes in full color before your eyes and i remember jumping up in the air and almost hitting my head on a on a beam in this <laughs> in this uh, you know small old building in this right. in this uh, shop it was uh, it was the uh, the original location of strawberry jams records in in spokane and seeing that and 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 buying that and just loving it, I mean motorhead had i mean, i mean it was, it was essentially you know a quantum leap forward um, you know certain things about that record are very important uh, in terms of the influence on bands like Metallica through the idea of a of a you know a constant double bass pattern right. through a song like overkill very heavy album you know i've I've often had this discussion with people about what are the heaviest records ever of the 1970s and you know, it, it really comes down to things like um, overkill, bomber, maybe a heavy load record, the first record, high speed on high tilt on high level or whatever it's called. <laughs> you right. know, uh, yeah. maybe the Ram Jam album, maybe a couple Ram of Black Jam, yeah. Sabbath albums, maybe um, Deep Purple in Rock. But but um, you know, down down this sort of path of um, the other game we used to play is what are what's the first album where every every song is heavy. Yeah, uh, And I remember the first one of those being ACDC Let There Be Rock, Wow! Yeah. although not the first one. The first one was Rainbow Rising, okay. ACDC Let There Be Rock, the Sex Pistols album. But it was also, in a sense, all three Motorhead albums. They, yeah. they put out an album in 77. They put out Overkill in March 79. They put out Bomber in, I think it's October 79. So, um, you know, in, in some ways... Overkill, one could definitely argue that it's the heaviest damn record of the entire 70s.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you get into this in the book, the 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 song Overkill with that double bass. And I mean, I remember interviewing Mike Portnoy about probably almost 10 years ago at this point, And he brought up that song as just this revolutionary song for drumming and how that double bass went. Constantly throughout that entire song, influencing not just the thrash metal scene that was to come, you know, some years later, but so many different drummers from Mike Portnoy. I mean, you listen to Tommy Lee and that double bass sound. I mean, there's there that's where it started. That's ground zero for double bass going constantly. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and Phil, you know, God love him, I I interviewed him before his death. I mean, the 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 sort of interesting thing, odd things Bad thing about writing this book is that I was almost finished this entire book, and both Lemmy, and Phil were still alive. Nobody wow. was dying, nobody was dead yet when I did this book i was I was literally finished, and I had to kind of like scramble and 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 sort of say what I wanted to say in a eulogy sense uh, at the end about two guys out of all three that this book is about um but anyways i did talk to phil um you know bef- before his death and and we talked at length about that and you know he was an interesting guy he um he he sort of like was just you know, kind of dumbfounded at all the, um, at, at all the accolades, you know, poured upon him by all these, you know, extreme metal people. And, and Mike Portnoy is extreme in a certain sense too. I mean, this is extreme progressive rock he comes from and, and he's, he's telling you about this, which is a beautiful thing that you guys talked about that. Um, but also, you know, definitely the Motorhead guys. I, I mean, the Metallica guys have talked to me at length about about the you know the value of Motorhead and Anthrax and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so this was uh, you know, and and it's funny. I brought up with all those guys. Uh, another one is uh, Pat Travers Hammerhead. You know, it's it's not double bass all the way through, but there are double bass things going on in the world, right? Um, not many. But uh, but this was double bass all the way through, and uh, you know, and I remember bringing that up with Phil, and he and he, he barely even sort of it, it registered. It's like you know, f uh, me, you're right, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. right, you know. It's, it's like he was, it's almost like he was acknowledging it for the first time. But yeah, uh, that's how it comes. Yeah, it's, it's the fun. It's yeah. I mean, it's it's very tragic if you think about Phil. I mean, I mean, essentially, essentially he never did anything ever again after Motorhead. Yeah. You know, he was never heard from again. And and Fast Eddie had a few things he got into. You know, most of it was lower level, except for Fastway, which was a great thing that he did yeah. ra- right after Motorhead. But But Phil... Just never ended up doing uh, doing much more with music, and it, and it, and and in a weird way um, that you gather from the book, it almost suits his personality that he was just sort of this outsider that just found himself in the middle of this metal storm.
3: Yeah, yeah. His his past story that you lay out in the book is very interesting too. We don't we don't have to get into it now, but you know he wasn't really a, even a music guy. He just kind of started drums to get out of trouble. He had a military drum teacher, I think was a military drummer. So there's there's such great stories in this. We're talking about Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers, The Rise of Motorhead by Martin Popoff. And, and Martin, let me ask you um, about the producer, just a legendary guy. He worked on Overkill and Bomber. His name was Jimmy Miller. And I mean, this guy, uh, The Stones, Sticky Fingers, Beggar's Banquet, worked with Clapton, Blind Faith, Traffic. I mean, this guy is just legendary guy, uh, who had stuff out in the sixties and early seventies. And how, I mean, at that time, was he down on his luck that he ended up with motorhead? I mean, is that no disrespect towards motorhead, but it, it seems like it was kind of a, um, a big switch from going from these major high profile superstar bands to ending up with, with motorhead to do the overkill record.
2: That's very interesting. I've never thought of it that way, and that's a really, really good question, and I, I really don't know the answer. But, you know, just off the top of my head now, kind of reflecting on it. Okay, so what we have happening here is, okay, number one, and, and there's kind of stories throughout the book in this, and it's it's sort of amusing and tragic at the same right. time, yep. because Motorhead are, are, you know, are, are notorious F-ups themselves, you know jimmy miller is is in the throes of a heroin addiction and and he's he's disappearing and not showing up and falling asleep in the in the in the ladies room and all this kind of stuff <laughs> but the other thing that's interesting just thinking about it is that you know you you mentioned those those great artists um it's almost like motorhead being the punk rock type a you know it like like almost a volatile form of type a punk rock personalities themselves to a t the entire trio um it it's like they are, they obviously uh impose their will on him and they don't get records that sound like anything that he would want to do or does or yeah, did right. you know all these classic records they get they still get biker rock and and which is crazy because cuz obviously you know the combination of these guys being the way they are strong-willed and and him being in the throes of heroin addiction they they basically run roughshod over him because this is not the kind of record he would ever want to make he must have been yeah. horrified at right. what he was hearing <laughs> yeah. and and yet you know this kind of music comes out of him this this absolutely um you know, groundbreaking, crazy. Why would anybody do this? On its way to Venom, on its way to black metal yeah. um, production ethic, and and to to have that coming out of that guy just seems like the classic um, kind of Motorhead absurdity.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 uh, interesting, and like you said, there's some there's some funny stories about J- Jimmy Miller in the, in the book, but they're also kind of tragic and sad when you think about them. Because, uh, you know, he had a terrible heroin addiction, which uh, I think eventually ended up killing him in, in the early 90s. But, um, yeah. you know, it's interesting. The Motorhead guys, they it was almost too much for them at, at times The the, the addictions that, that Jimmy Miller had. But, you know, Lemmy was never a, a guy who was into drugs like that. And, and drugs were a big part of Motorhead. I mean, can you talk a little bit about about that?
2: Yeah, so so Lemmy was always a uh, notorious and I must say articulate um you know protester against the evils of heroin, but yet he sort of found this toxic chemical balance in his own body that he that he that he figured he could be a functioning uh, alcoholic speed freak and still get through life. But you know, he he is essentially only getting through because also we sort of you know, get through, through Eddie's charming sort of, uh, explanations of things that, that we do realize that Lemmy had sort of a lazy streak to him as well. A lazy streak combined with a, a, I don't give a damn streak and, and I'm somewhat of a rock star streak and I'm an outlaw streak. Um, so all of this combines that, that Lemmy doesn't really do, uh, enough of the heavy lifting within this band. And it, and it kind of falls to Eddie to do it and, and Phil in his sort of, sort of, you know, it, it almost seems like he gets, he gets like, um, he has this responsible streak where he, he like pops out of his stupor and realizes like, we got to run this band and you know, the the, the crazy, you know, the management, um, musical chairs all throughout as well. But so, so, so yes. So let me, um, you know, he, he writes some great songs and he, and he's, he's an incredible lyricist, but he writes some great songs against the evils of heroin. And yet he's, he's a constant, you know, heavy boozer and, uh, and speed freak. And the other guys are, are definitely boozers as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, he's I I think Lemmy, you know, he hints at the fact that that he's seen too many people, you know, fall to heroin along the way and uh, and Jimmy Miller turns out to be just another one.
3: Yeah. And the book has all this stuff, the girl school connection and the uh, cr- the you know, whole backstory behind all the records including Ace of Spades, which was technically the first American release. I mean, you mentioned coming down to America and getting Overkill, But that was, of course, in the import section. Back in the day, there used to be in certain record stores you could get imports. But in your mainstream record stores, the first Motorhead record to ever appear would have been Ace of Spades. And was was there a different label that picked up Ace of Spades? I can't remember. In in the States, I guess there would have been.
2: Well, okay, so I'm from Canada, and again, I'm doing this a little bit from from memory, memory but, I mean, basically, their Bronzes uh, distributor was always Mercury. So if, if it was Ace of Spades, yeah, it probably would have been a Mercury album, I believe. And, you know, and from that point on, the records were out regularly. And I think Canada kind of got the releases ahead of time. Um, you know, I, I was... I, I swear I must have been the first person in B C to ever be in the Motorhead Bangers because I remember right. joining the Motorhead Bangers, the Saxon militia, Metal Militia or whatever it's called, and the Buffalo Sabres fan club all at the same time right. in, in the late seventies, yeah, right? I think you uh, from, mentioned that from, 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 in, the, from BC. in the opening
3: to the book actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> so so um but also I believe the records also came out in Canada um, a little early. I think we might have had we might have had Ace of Spades or or Motorhead, um came out um i'm just i'm just my my brain's a little scrambled but yeah. um but but essentially uh you know we were learning about these bands through sounds um and later Kerrang, but Sounds and Melody Maker and, and you know, getting getting all these records as imports. My bomber was an import, it was the colored vinyl. I think my my overkill was the colored vinyl. You know, Jerry Braun liked to do this from bronze. Um, but yeah, it was a very haphazard release schedule um, when it when it came to these records coming out in the States. But Ace of, Ace of Spades was the one that that, that hit, um, didn't hit big. It never went gold in the States. Um, but it was a big record in the UK. I mean, motorhead were a big band in the UK. And going back to your earlier question about Jimmy Miller, you know, motorhead were, you know, if, if you're, if you're sitting there looking at this in the isolated, um, you know, uh, climbs of the Island, um, motorhead were were pretty much a pretty big band. Yeah. I mean, they were in the news all the time. They're always in the clubs and they were always in the press, um, for, for one notorious reason or another. Um, so, so locally they were a big band, but um, but they never made it in the states because because they just never had they ne- they just never had the proper release schedule. And I remember even you know I, you know I don't want to step too far forward, but but I believe Eddie talks about in the book as well um, this whole idea about how you know you get over for Iron Fist and the record's not in the in the shops at all, um, and and it's just the typical. Um, the typical thing you just you just kind of glean from the whole head story that that it's it, it was just like a comedy of errors constantly, yeah.
3: you know. And to talk a little bit about Eddie's story with this band and and leading up to his exit from the band, I mean, one thing we've always been told on on the internet and word of mouth and blogs and articles was well, the the reason. Fast Eddie Clark left Motorhead was specifically because of the duet that they were doing with Wendy O. Williams, and that that was what caused him to exit the band. However, in reading the book, it seems to, like, to me that, yeah, it, it all maybe kind of came to a head at that recording session, but there were problems that... Uh, were kind of going on all along. I mean, you mentioned that Eddie was never happy with the guitar sound that he was getting. You, he would do even bring in strats and and Les Pauls and do double tracks uh, with both guitars trying to get this guitar sound and there's one time where Leslie West plays through his amps and he can't believe that that Leslie's getting this great sound when he's just been so frustrated with his his sound. So it almost seems like that was a big issue, it, and it seems as though Eddie's management of you know helping manage the band, and then possibly even the fact that he became a producer on the Iron Fist record, which is the record that came out the next studio record after Ace of Spades. And w- w- was there all was resentment building towards Eddie because of all these roles that he was playing on the Lemmy Phil side, and w- was he was he so upset with his sound that? that resentment was building within him. I mean what what's your thoughts on that? his exit.
2: Well, that that that's a that's a very eloquent summation of the whole thing. And, and and you know as you were saying that I'm I'm just thinking again, comedy of errors and and just and just the the weird chemistry of these three guys coming together, two complete enigmas who have no past plus Lemmy who has a past. And and so they're coming together Two of the guys, actually three of the guys, damn it, it, absolutely all three of the guys have no idea about heavy metal or or what heavy metal is or why are we doing heavy metal and are we heavy metal. And believe it or not, we're the heaviest metal band in the whole world. Right. I mean, they're very heavy. They're a very heavy band but but none of these guys think like heavy metal people. They don't like heavy metal, they don't listen to heavy metal. So so yes, so they, they have this problem with the sound, with Lemmy's sound. Lemmy is, is loud and abrasive and sounds like a guitar, and everybody wishes this band would have a bass player, but they don't, so Eddie's got that problem. There's the money problems constantly. There's, there's the being worked to death, and and while you're being worked to death, you're doing speed and you're drinking. And, and Phil gets in and, some
3: fights, and they have to cancel tours, which Eddie was really yes, they get in fights. He
2: screws up his hand. You know, they're they're basically chaotic, you know, anarchic punk rockers, and and they're being worked to the bone by management, by the label, by themselves, um, and and they they feel like. Like they 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 kind of realize, I believe there's even a spot in the in the book somewhere. I'm just going by memory a little bit, but but there's this idea that uh, you know, and it, and it's kind of funny, but they they realize that the only time they can make a living is when they're playing live because they're not making anything off of the records, yeah. kind of thing.
3: Yep, that is. Yeah. we're is always right? anxious yeah. to get back out on the road because that's again where they made their money.
2: Yeah, so this is this is frazzling nerves and wearing them out, and 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 then there's this idea that hey, if we get Eddie to produce the record, we don't have to pay a producer. So Eddie now has, you know, he's he's it's time for Iron Fist. The band is is not particularly inspired. They're <clears throat> very tired and overworked, and Eddie now has to wear two hats. And as you mentioned, all of a sudden, what also happens is. Lemmy's predilection for... Lemmy and the women is a very interesting story because... Because he's a great womanizer. He famously says, Oh, I'm a total slut. Everybody knows what's going on and understands and all this. But he also is very respectful of women in, in a certain sense that he, and he, he loves, he loves the idea when women become rockers. He loves women rockers. He, he, he just loves to see them participate. This goes all the way from girl up through Wendy O. Williams, which you're going to talk about, all the way up to Skunk and Nancy. So essentially, you know, he, he, um, at, at this one point, it's like, oh, Wendy O. Williams, we're going to do this duet with Wendy O. Williams. And, and Eddie basically thinks that this is, uh, debasing ourselves. We have to be more of a serious band. We're serious musicians. That's the other interesting right. thing that goes through this band is that is that they consider themselves serious musicians, um, and they never get any respect. Nobody else considers them serious musicians, yeah. right? Um, so, so Eddie is saying, you know, this is stupid. We got to stop this novelty stuff. These these EPs, Motorhead, Girl School, whatever. Um, and so here comes another one. So so it comes to to a head in in uh, Toronto, um, and on on route to the Palladium in New York, where where um, you know. Uh, Lemmy wants to do this. He's got a little bit of a lust slash romantic interest with Wendy. And, you know, as as Eddie explains that they're wearing whatever, Wendy Williams or plasmatic shirts and, and, and right. they're egging Eddie on. And, and, and it's like, you could tell possibly Brian Robertson from thin Lizzie is waiting in the wings. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit vague, but Eddie sees the writing on the wall and he's getting really ticked off at this whole thing. And, and they're, and they're egging him on and, and there's this sort of funny episode where, where as Eddie explains, you know, we get to the Palladium and and they they're in their dressing room and I'm stuck in the boiler room yeah. with like a chair and a table and there's a bottle and a line of something on an amp and that's my exit and or that's my goodbye present. They sort made of him thing.
3: sound check and, separately at that show. They wouldn't even
2: sound check. Yeah, and and he plays this show and and I guess it turns out to be his last show essentially. So so you know, all of this, all of this comes to a head. And again, it's keystone cops. It's comedy of errors. Like, like these guys are just like winging it, making it up as they go along. There's only three of them. You know, it's not a band of five people. Um, and uh and they're and they're not all completely functioning the most functioning of of the guys who seems to be given a damn at all is eddie and uh and all of a sudden he's uh he's the guy out of the band
3: yeah and and so this whole story again that I just always hear about well Wendy O Williams broke up the original motorhead not not exactly correct right
2: well um i mean it is it is correct if If you if you say that you know Eddie leaves because of this story, Um, so but but it is silly. I mean, it's like it was going to be you know a single stand by your man. That's it, Tammy Wynette, and you know big deal. Um, But but in essence, I mean, it is the straw that breaks the camel's back, and Eddie is gone. And uh and that's the end of the classic lineup. It's not the first Motorhead lineup as we realize in the book. There's 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 all this again, comedy of errors with uh with Larry Wallace and, and uh Lucas Fox and and stuff that, that kicks off the band. But but at this point you know, and, and you know, I I really I really feel that um I'm one of the guys that sort of stands with Lemmy that even though this book is about the original and it's the cold classic lineup, I think they make albums every bit as good as those original albums as time goes on. And, and they're one of the examples that I always fight tooth and nail. Um, you know, when I'm talking about bands that I think that are making their best music now, yeah, I'm sure. one of those guys that stands with Lemmy and says the last five Motorhead albums are just as good as the first five, if not better.
3: Wow. Wow. So motorhead ends that original trio lineup and and brian from thin lizzy comes in and finishes that tour and goes on to record another perfect day with them um and this can you talk a little bit about brian i mean this is a kind of a big deal guy who's stepping into this band right
2: yeah, so Brian comes from Thin Lizzy, which is a very respected but much smoother rocking um, you know, uh heavy metal band, hard rock band from the past, Thin Lizzy. And so he comes in and um the thing about Brian is he's definitely not a smooth guy. He's he's a he's a crazy fighting, drinking, party guy um and and he has you know, as much trouble he's as notorious right from the start. But the other thing that happens with him is this silly stuff about how, you know, he he's coming just like Motorhead, oddly. You know, poetically, and I'm only thinking about this now, which is which is quite a quite a deep thought. It's not my thought. I'm just re- reflecting on it. But Thin Lizzie and Motorhead both denigrate heavy metal and yet they are heavy metal in a sense and Brian is coming from another band just like Motorhead that 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 has no sort of uh, like like um you know obvious connection or love of heavy metal so he comes in and he expresses his um not being part of heavy metal by wearing shorts and sneakers on stage and putting his headband on and, and having short hair. He cuts his hair all of a sudden. He doesn't look like a rocker anymore. And this kicks Lemmy off because, you know, Lemmy wants to have that black leather jacket image of the band. So he's there doing that. They also put out a record that, you know, now stands as a Motorhead classic and I loved it from the start but a lot of people thought that the guitar work was just a little too clean on it and the production was a little too clean on it I love Another Perfect Day it's almost my favorite Motorhead album yeah I'm
3: Um, I'm a fan of that record too but I think we are in the minority definitely and I mean even Lemmy I, I think said it was one if not his least favorite Motorhead record
2: yeah, but sometimes, I mean, I don't know, with that guy, I mean, he, he could go from one end to another. I mean, sometimes he, he could say he really likes it, right? Yeah. And, and definitely has some great Lemmy lyrics. There's some, some amazing lyrics on there. But, but so, so they put out one record. It's almost like they're Black Sabbath Born Again. It's, it's one record with the radically different mm-hmm. lineup. And at, at in, in, I think it's the same year, isn't it, 1983? Um, um, I think so. But so, the, so they do this one album and um and Brian is summarily trounced from the band he's he's gone for for all of these myriad different reasons and then and then hence what happens is as we get that transition into the Wurzel and the Phil Campbell era and then and then Wurzel falls away and and we get we get I think something like 25 years of a very consistent lineup
3: right right yeah great stuff again the book is beer drinkers and hellraisers The Rise of Motorhead. Martin, the the title of the book, Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers, I I know the answer to this, but can you fill the listeners in on where that, that title comes from?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I have this sort of idea when I think of book titles. I mean, I've done 70 books now, and, and I, I do like this idea. I have a UFO book called Shoot Out the Lights. And, you know, I, I, I love the idea of, like, cross-referencing bands a little bit and giving a little bit of a nod to some other band. But that, that is obviously a, um, a big Awesome heavy early um, ZZ Top song "Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers" from 1973, and of course Motorhead covered it. So um, and they were beer drinkers and hellraisers. So so there's all your levels for you. I love ZZ Top, one of my favorite bands of all time. Motorhead covered them, and Motorhead are beer drinkers and hellraisers.
3: And it's a it's a unique Motorhead song, even you know it's a cover, but also Ed, Fast Eddie Clark sings some lead on that song too, which I, I believe is the only time he ever did that
2: that's right. Uh, again, uh, you're you're testing my memory a little bit, yeah. but uh, but I believe the the cool thing about the original ZZ Top version is that Dusty and Billy both sing. It's like a duet back and forth. It's a call and response. And if I'm not if I'm not wrong on this, um, Lemmy and Eddie do the call and response on uh, the Motorhead version. Am I right about that? You are right. Yeah, I I don't, so. it's kind of hard yeah. to
3: track it down. It is up on YouTube right now, but it doesn't seem to be on iTunes or Spotify or anything like that. But if you go youtube Hmm. you can you can hear it and martin yeah a great great book we highly recommend it we're going to have a link up in today's show notes on talkingmetal.com where you can purchase this book highly recommended uh martin's website is what is it martinpopoff.com absolutely it is yeah we'll have that linked too and uh, martin i I see on facebook every now and again what's the best social media place to to catch up with you Is it Twitter? Yeah,
2: I haven't been much of a Twitter guy. And Facebook, the funny thing about Facebook is I ran up against that 5,000 friend limit. And uh, and and it's caused me to just like like be a little down on it, and I haven't been mm. keeping up that well. But uh, but yeah, I'm I'm on Facebook. Unfortunately, people can't friend me anymore. It's, oh, it's very see. annoying getting all these friend requests. I I hope they change that. Yeah. But uh, no, I'm there. And yeah, yes, yeah, MartinPopoff dot com for all the latest books. And there's every time I have a new book uh, come out, uh, it it eventually goes up there. And the latest up there are the the, the rush, rush album by album which again you know thank you very much you helped me on the second one that i did of those which is the acdc album by album so so marks a part of that I can't wait and to that read comes that. out in yeah, that comes out in October. And as I was telling you before we we, we got on the air, I'm doing a, I'm doing a um, Floyd one, um, just like the ACDC and the Rush one. Right. Um, so that's out. And I've also done a Thrash trilogy, Hit the Lights. The second one's called Caught in the Mosh. Uh, Caught in the Mosh, that just went up. And I'm just about to give my layout guy the uh, the third and final of that trilogy, which will be called Tornado of Souls, The uh, Thrash's Titanic Clash which will cover the years 86 to 91. So there'll be a a thrash trilogy to go along with my uh, New Average Heavy Metal Trilogy, which are all kind of designed the same way. So yeah, lot's happening.
3: Yeah, I have dozens of your books. I, I highly recommend all of them, including this new one we're talking about, Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers, The Rise of Motorhead. Martin, you know people have called me a metal expert but in in my mind you're the metal experts metal expert you you really have such a deep knowledge of this art form known as hard rock and heavy metal and where do we go from here i mean the, you know we're we're 40 plus years into this approaching 50 actually if not 50 um where, where, does, where does hard rock and heavy metal go in the future? Are we kind of at the end of an era? Is this the twilight of, of this art form?
2: Well, you know, I, I thank you for saying that, but, you know, you've got to realize also... I I really feel like I haven't kept up. I'm 54 years old, right? So right. I I feel like I haven't been keeping up. I mean, I, I we, we debate this. We had a we had a magazine up here in Canada called Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles. Tim yes. Anderson, Mark Roman, all these guys, right? And so we ran this magazine from 94 to 2000, and we all sort of say that around the year 2000, you know, going forward a little bit, um, that's when when it it started getting so out of control that there were so many bands out all the time. And and then, and then we get into the, the revolution in the industry where CDs are gone. You know, there's there's not trucks full of plastic anymore. Um, you know, there's a brief era where it's downloading. It was a brief era. It's not downloading anymore. It's a streaming life now, right? Yeah. Yep. So it's it's a Spotify now. It's streaming. It's YouTube. Lots has changed in the business. I feel like I haven't really kept up. So thank you for calling me a metal expert. But, but really, I feel like I'm a metal historian. I, yeah. I have my thing. I I know metal quite well up until about the year 2000, but that's 17 years ago now, right? Yeah. So, where is it going? I mean, um, it, it's interesting you ask that because there's a lot of debate lately. I'm, I'm part of this email group with a bunch of email people and we and are, are with a bunch of industry people, uh, you know, the likes of like Monty Connor and Brian Slagle and Brian Binkaroff and all these guys and John Frank. And, and we were talking about that latest article that just came out about um, the death of guitar and, and mm-hmm. the decline of guitar sales with Gibson and Fender and what's going on and, and how Taylor Swift. Believe it or not, Taylor Swift is one of the most influential guitarists of the last few years because right. she's up there holding a guitar, and it's, 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 it's uh, inspired girls to pick up a guitar. But the fact of the matter is, the whole gist of this article and what we've been talking about, and it extends to metal, is the idea that um, you know, rap and hip-hop is so big now, and electronic music is so big, that as I put it when we were debating with this email group, Guitar to young kids these days is like French horn was to us yeah, coming totally. up through through school. Guitar is kind of like this foreign instrument that that it may come around again and and it, it may take a guitar hero of some sort to come up but Right now, um, you know, guitars look like an old man's, um, you know, instrument of, of you know, of torture, uh, you know, and a weapon. Um, but, but it's not used very much to right. make music these days. It's, it's about turntables and computers and 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 you know, DJs and and whatnot. Yeah. So where does metal fit right now? Um, you know, the other thing we talked about with our email group is, is this idea we, we it, it it somehow morphed into a discussion about Vardis. And we realized you know, what you know, there are bright spots all the time. There are weird little cultural things that happen and right now one of the things is this whole new wave of British heavy- slash retro speed metal, slightly power metal, but dirtier towards biker metal, but you know, basically new wave British heavy metal. There's a lot of young kids that are, Mm -hmm. that are into that stuff. But, um, you know, there is a very big question mark out right now about um how many young people are into metal and you know, and that and that, you know, we circle right back to your original question, it's kind of a grave situation. Yeah. Um you know, I, I've got a son who's seventeen years old and, and basically anything that's not rap and pop is considered rock. It's right. all put into this category of rock and it's considered an a fossilized form of music he makes no distinction about heavy metal or any of that stuff. Anything with anybody standing up there with a guitar and drums and a bass is rock. And it's just this curious thing off to the side of the mainstream because the mainstream is hip hop and rap. Yeah. It's, it's interesting
3: Um, though, the French horn analogy, because even with my son, you know, I, I was trying to get him interested in, guitar and just, it was not cool to him. You know, he, he's decided to pick out a banjo and that's what he's trying to learn to play banjo, which to me, yeah. when I was a kid, that was, that would have been totally not cool, but he doesn't, a guitar is not cool. Rock in general, I don't really think has the cool factor. I mean, I, I've heard people say, well, rock is kind of now what jazz was, you know, back in the seventies the and eighties, you know, and, and that's, yeah. I think a really fair analogy and in, in comparison
2: yeah, and and um, you know th- this whole this whole discussion we had in this and this is like long. I believe it's a Washington Post article that that got reproduced in a few places. I think it was in our Toronto newspaper, and I get the New York Times, and I think it was in there as well. Um, you know, it was all about how they're not selling very many guitars, and yeah. then you know our group talked about Jack and Dino as part of our group as well, the the famous producer, and he talked about how he. Three, three of his favorite guitars he bought at at, at like Goodwill for 19.99 and 25 dollars and all that stuff and and basically japanese knockoffs of of fenders and whatnot and he says you know part of this thing about guitars like like we can we can you know lament the death of rock but part of it is is that you know w- the world doesn't need more guitars because yeah. guitars stick around and and they become old and classic and the old ones are actually thought to be cooler than the new ones well, that's um, a good point, so yeah. you know they they don't they don't essentially Often get trashed and thrown in the trash heap. They 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 stick around. It's 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 a little bit like you know how many hundred billion people have been on the earth, right? Yeah. Um, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, how, how many more guitars need to be made? Um, and especially again, how many guitars need to be made when you know the the spotty history of guitar heroes since Randy Rhodes and Zach Wilde and Eddie Van Halen reads somewhat like Jack White, John Mayer, Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. They're really, it's it's a really spotty history, right?
0: Yeah.
2: Um, there's just, there's just not a lot of, you know, what, Johnny Lang, jo- Joe Boston, ba- Bonham- yeah. I mean, I mean, essentially, um, essentially <clears throat> the standard definition of a guitar hero, um, we haven't had one since the mid 80s.
3: Yeah, very true.
2: Right? So so um but you know the 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 optimistic voice says um all it takes is is one guy to come along and be famous and and make, make people cool. love the guitar again. Yeah. I mean Kurt Cobain was one of those. Right. I mean we're not talking about a virtuoso that 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 worshiped the guitar, he worshiped the song and he was great um but he also um you know uh influenced generations of, of guys to pick up the guitar as as did grunge in general. I mean grunge was a swing back to to the caveman aspect of guitar bass and drums. Right so um yeah it's it's uh the state of metal I guess to add another thing to it, I, I hate to drone you know, I, I hope I'm not talking your ear off here no, and I'm, no, I'm boring you to death, but, um, you know, the, the other thing about the state of metal, which, which is nice and cool is that it is absolutely the frontier front edge of progressive rock. I mean the the greatest virtuosic playing in all of music these days, uh, where it's, it's more exciting as hell as anything is taking place in metal with, everybody with guitars, with guitarists, bassists, and drummers. I mean, metal, metal is a very difficult, difficult thing to play. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot of great metal being played and a lot of virtuosic players that, uh, it's almost like if they grow out of metal and go into progressive rock, they'll have no problem playing progressive rock because, you know, their feet have been put to the fire in in competing with the levels that heavy metal uh, demands of people these days.
3: Right on, right on, definitely. Well, Martin, and we're going to have to cut it there, but again, thank you for this great Motorhead book. I really, truly enjoyed reading it. And one, one thing that happens when I read your book books, you know, I, I get so excited in, about the catalog, and a lot of times I haven't listened to it for years and years, and it always gets me back into the music and uh, i just highly recommend all your books to our our listeners out there and again we'll have your website up linked through the show notes martinpopoff.com and uh yeah thanks so much martin
2: all right thank you mark this was fun again yes i i I love talking to you we'll uh hopefully we have many more to come
3: yeah well acdc conversation i'm sure on the way soon
2: yeah absolutely we got to do that one (laughs) cool
1: I think I see you Gone to seed The only reasons Were your guilt and greed You're not there on your own Your face turned to stone Whatever happened to your life Stone, dead, forever Time, with a long, long wait. And I can your fingers, in the curly gates. You're gonna leave your number, and we'll call you. You know your problems ain't exactly new. The left side of the road, Your touch has turned Lizard. You're your top tycoon, the sweet lamb lizard, with a silver spoon. And you know I never had it quite so good, cause you didn't know that you feel good, but your time has come today. Turns out you feel okay.
3: 1979, off the bomber record by Motorhead. Classic stuff there, produced by Jimmy Miller, who we, we mentioned during the interview. Definitely an interesting guy, to say the least. Oh, thank you, Martin, for that. A Motorhead History Lesson by the great Martin Popoff. Check out his books. Go to martinpopoff.com. The website will have it linked through today's show notes. Go buy that book. Do yourself a favor. Read that friggin' book. It's fucking awesome. Let's keep this going. This song right here is back in the U.S.S.A. Not to be confused with the song Back in the U.S.S.R., which Lemmy covered. If you go to Spotify, you can find him covering that Beatles song without Motorhead, I believe. But anyways, this is Back in the U.S.S.A. This is off the brand-new album by Barb Wire Dolls, which is called Rub My Mind. It was released on Motorhead Records check it out and we'll hear this song and then we'll hear from pin doll from barbed wire dolls Hey, this is Mark Striegel, and we are talking with Pin Doll from Barbwire Dolls. He's out on the road right now with Warp Tour. Which uh, what, you guys are about two days into the tour now, right, Pin?
4: Yeah, we've we, we played two dates already. We played two dates already, but it's uh, already our fifth day on, sixth day on tour because we had to drive. Seventh day, what am I saying? We had to drive all the way up to Seattle. Now we're driving back down, and we're arriving in Albuquerque, and so it's just nonstop, but it's great.
3: Cool, and this is you're on the the Warp Tour all summer long, right?
4: Yes, all all dates all summer long until it ends August six. Uh, so yeah, it's a big tour.
3: Yeah, you guys are going nonstop. You had new music out last year. You are constantly on the road touring, and more new music on the way. What in just a, I guess a week or two, the brand new record will drop. Rub my mind. We just heard Back in the U.S.S.A. Great, great track. Uh, I'm totally excited to hear the, the full album. Can you confirm the date of July 7th as the release date?
4: Yeah, yeah. The, the July 7th is the release date. Uh, and, yeah, it was, it was pushed back a few days, a right. few, few weeks, because, you know, rec- record plants, you know, we had to get the vinyl out, got it on white vinyl. It looks really good. Um, but yeah, back in you say the first single and video from the album, and the album's really, really great album. We're really stoked on it. We're really proud of it. That's why we had to get it out immediately, even though we released our album last year. Our first one was Motorhead music. so
3: Yeah, yeah. great album. And I want to talk about Motorhead music cool. and your involvement with with that yeah, label. Eight. But first, let's talk about "Rub My Mind." Um, the the, uh, the where was what studio did you guys record this at?
4: But it's really kind of important how we recorded it. Yeah. Um, what happened was that we played Riot Fest uh, in Chicago and we were friends with Eagles of Death Metal, this band. Sure. And we were watching them and stuff. And we invited them to come back to Crete, Greece, where we live in an artist commune, to come and record some acoustic stuff and hang out, teach them how to surf. And um, they said, well, why don't you come to our studio in, in Joshua Creek called Rancho de la Luna? And we were like, Rancho de Luna? Oh my God. That's, that's like a legendary studio. studio. Yeah where Queens of Estonia's Caius the Desert Rock started, you know, Foo Fighters did their Sonic Highways thing there, PJ Harvey. We're like, oh, my God, we want to be honored to come to this. He said, we oh, well, come by. So um, he wrote, Dave catching the guitarist wrote me and said, okay, you know, you're coming, you know, a few days later, whatever, a while back later, he's like, okay, you're coming November 23rd or 22nd or whatever. I forget what the day was now. And literally 10 minutes after we were stopped texting each other was when the Paris attacks happened in Bataclan on
0: wow. in the band, wow. a hor-
4: horrible tragedy. So we didn't re- re- bother him for at least a week. We were just, you know, we were in awe of what's going on, very just sad. And then he wrote us back and said, you're still coming in tomorrow, whatever, you know, the next, next few days to come in and record. And we were, like, are you sure he wants to come? He said, yes, the music must go on. You must come. Wow. And so we were so inspired that we ended up writing seven more songs, literally in three days, and one at the studio. And we did it all around in two days. We did album in two days. We had to leave because Iggy Pop was coming in with Josh Valmy to do their post-pop depression album. Right. But he gave us two days, and we recorded the whole album in two days, and really caught the desert vibe, the vibe of the world at the time, or, you know, the melancholy of what's happening in the world you know there's some political songs but there's also some really moving soul-steering songs that that were written based on that situation um, right. including a song called Desert Song We had to be in there
3: <laughs> right very cool and was there a certain producer you were working with
4: yeah we definitely went back with Jay Baumgarten our producer of the last album called Desperate because he's just He's like another member of the band. He he knows us so well. he comes to our live shows, and um, he really, as soon as I told him we recorded, you know, recording at Rancho Luna, he said, "I'm in." And I said, "Well, I don't even know if there's a budget for you or anything to help out." And he's like, "I don't care. If wow. it's Rancho Luna, I'm there." And he and he owns like the best studio in the world called Energy Studios in Hollywood, which everybody from Lincoln Park to everybody's recorded there. It's like whatever, huge Hollywood studio, world class. But he as soon as he heard Roger Looney, he was like, I gotta be there, you know, I gotta be part of this. So that's really great. And he made it sound fantastic. Actually as we finished the album, uh Eagles of the Metal came to see the last song being mixed and they heard Desert Song and they just sat in silence, listened to it and and it was a very emotional moment, them hearing the songs that we wrote based on how we felt after what happened to them and the world and the victims in Paris. So um it's quite moving.
3: Wow. We're very
4: we're still we're still, we're still shaking up a little bit thinking about it.
3: Yeah, what what an amazing story! I had no idea you you know you had this connection with Eagles of Death Metal. That's a that's a great story. And again, the record we're talking about is "Rub My Mind." The band is Barb Wire Dolls. We are talking with Pindal, the guitar player in the band. Just to kind of touch on upon a few real cool things in your history. You know, you guys formed in Greece as you mentioned, but I, I thought it was really kind of neat how you ended up in Los Angeles, in the States here, a real legendary guy, Rodney Bingenheimer. I guess he heard you guys over in Greece and somehow it, brought you over. How did, the, wh- it was the, what's his in- involvement?
4: It, it, it was the weirdest thing. It's 2010. We started our band. We couldn't get a show in, in the Island of Crete, the whole Island. Nobody would book us because we were like punk. Um, they're afraid of punks. They think they're anarchists only and they're going to bomb the, the house or something. right? So we were really disappointed. We were like, wow, so we're going to Athens to play. We were like, how are we ever going to get out of this world? And we found this movie called Mayor of Sunset Strip at a DVD store that was going out of business.
3: I love that movie. We
4: bought it for a dollar. Yeah, for a euro. We bought it for a euro. And we're like, oh, my God, this guy, Rodney Bingenheimer, he's like the most famous DJ in America. He discovered everybody and started playing them. And we were like, oh, my God, if he only could discover us, you know, in MySpace. And we didn't do anything. We just thought about it. And literally two weeks later... We got an email from his assistant Cindy. Says Rodney discovered you on MySpace. He would love for you to send your demo if you have any music you have. And we're like, yes, we just recorded a demo. So we sent it to him. He started playing it nonstop, and he invited us to LA for a show. So we were like, well, let's do it. So we sold everything we owned. I'm a professional surfer, so I, I had my own surfboard, miles like so I've just got six new boards, you know, with everything on there, and they're worth a lot of money. So I sold those. I told I didn't even tell the shape. I was like, sorry, I just sold them all. Wow. We bought tickets, we went to L.A., we meet Rodney at Canners Deli, where he always hangs out. And he says, you have to go to the Sunset Strip and go see the whiskey. That's the most legendary club in the world, apart from CBGB's, which I know, of course. So we're there, and that's where we run into Lemmy, walking on the street. And we've become friends with Lemmy just through the years, but he never saw us live. And then in 2015, he was looking for a band to put out on his label with his record company, Partners. and he turned down 64 bands he was really searching for somebody and everybody sounded like Motorhead I guess and he didn't want that and um, he saw us and just said you guys want to be on Motorhead Music and we said yes and um, so it's a very weird the first night in LA we were with Rodney and Lemmy and then you know five years later we're signed to Motorhead Music because of Lemmy because Rodney told us to go to the Whiskey A Go-Go so it's a very surreal weird experience and we ended up couldn 't leave we couldn 't leave America for two and a half years because we had no money to go back home and we just illegally played all across the country for two and a half years playing shows and then we finally went to Europe and We rarely see our home maybe once every two years
3: so in, but That's in right. in between that time you know, when Lemmy signed you and and you first came over and met Rodney. And Rodney, you know, kind of, I guess, indirectly introduced you to Lemmy by sending you to, uh, you said, with the Whiskey, right? Was that where he was or the Rainbow? Yeah. Yeah, Whiskey, okay. He
4: he told us to go to the Whiskey, but we we saw him as we were walking past the Whiskey towards the
3: Rainbow. Oh, I got you. Okay, cool. He
4: he must have been walking somewhere. I don't know where he was going.
3: But in that five-year period, I mean, a lot of stuff (laughs) happened for you guys. It was just, what, constant touring? I mean, you worked with legendary people like Steve Albini recording stuff uh i mean is there just quickly like the two minute summary of that five years for you guys what was going on
4: it was like black flags henry Rollins' book get in the van we literally played about 400 shows um living out of the van living of people's houses squatting at people's houses left and right breaking down everywhere left and right having to get stuck in cities for three months at a time playing every week to make money to book the next tour and then we recorded with Steve Albini because he liked the band and he gave us two days to come and record out of his schedule that was booked. And we raised money to our fans, gave us some money to re- to record most of it. And that came out and the press went crazy saying, you know, like the best punk band in 20 years. And everybody loved that album. And it got us to Europe and we started touring Europe nonstop. And, and um, we toured on that album for three years. We never had the time to even record another album you know because we had to survive by touring and that's pretty much it and then uh it's kind of the same old same old except our music's constantly changing that's all
3: and nice you know, and that's and, it <laughs> yeah now motorhead music obviously we we lost the 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 great Lemmy kilmeister but motorhead music the label is still continuing on are there any significant people we might know behind it running it
4: um, well, what happened is he, with his longtime manager, Todd Singerman, who had been with for 25 years, I guess, um, and the label that had been putting their music out for decades, um, they, they started, you know, the, their label was Motorhead Music. They released Motorhead albums. They started it, um, they were always putting up with the same label, but they finally started the name Motorhead Music, I guess, years ago. And Lemmy is a big supporter of bands. He really, you know, helps bands, you know, he's helped so many bands along the way from you know, you name it, and um, he really was disgusted with the music scene. And kept telling everybody, you know, what's going on? I can't stand the music that's out there. You know, if nobody's gonna sign these bands, let's sign somebody. So they all started looking for him, presenting bands to him, I guess, and and um, you know, and, and we got somehow by serendipity. Somebody said they're playing the whiskey tonight. He said, Oh my God, I'm I'm go- I'm there. So we came. And uh, as far as I know, you know, it's all the people that worked with Motorhead and promoted Motorhead. There's nobody new. And we, even right. even his agents took us on, you know, well, our, I mean, and Todd, Todd, the manager took us on. He said, look, if Lemmy said good, I'm taking you on. I said, well, you got to see us live. He's like, I trust Lemmy. I said, OK, I know you trust Lemmy, but you've you got to come see us live before you want to work with us. And he did. And I said, oh, my God, you know now I see what Lemmy saw. So it was really great that he saw that. But um, it's the same thing. All the Lemmy head, all the Lemmy, you know, fans, you know, Motorhead bangers. They all come to our shows, curious, saying, you know, I know you're not like Motorhead, but you're like Lemmy's, you know, love child, musical child. Right. You know, trying to keep the legacy going. So we're really curious and after the show, they're like, yeah, we really dig your band. You've got it going, and and you know, we, we we'll we'll be behind you. So we're really grateful for that. I mean, it's the highest honor, hugest honor to have Lemmy approve you. I mean, there's nobody higher than him in our world. When it comes to rock and roll, you know,
3: Absolutely. no one's seen
4: it more. No one knows more about everything. I'm not talking just rock and metal, just everything. I mean, so, it's, you know, it's too bad that, you know, well, he went away, passed away, you know, nicely. He was, he was at peace. Um, but, you know, he left a legacy and, you know, nobody can fulfill that, especially us. But we'll definitely, you know, create our own legacy under his umbrella and love. You know, we asked ourselves, what would let me do all the time?
3: Right on. Right on. So, yeah. you've had uh, just uh, an amazing history, I mean, in these past seven years <laughs> since, since you've been here in the States. I mean, it's quite intense. Now, can I ask you, are you originally from Greece?
4: Yes, I'm full Greek. I just, I, I went to American schools
3: oh, okay. for, for many Ex-
4: years. And you... I, I've lived in L.A. and Venice many times.
3: <laughs> yeah, because your, your yeah. accent, I mean, I barely even hear an accent.
4: You know, there's, so, yeah. there's no accent anymore. It's, right. If you hear my parents, then you then you know. <laughs> right. I can speak Greek all you want. So <laughs> I right. think okay. English is easier to understand.
3: <laughs> right, I got you. And you, you still surf? Yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. Whenever we're not on tour every day, it's pretty much we all go. It's our detoxing. It's our way of relaxing because we're busy all the time. Writing songs and working and doing making clothes. I make our singers making clothes. and So, surfing is our, our our relaxation, my way of staying in balance between music and what I love.
3: Awesome. Pin, it's been great Thank talking you. with you. Uh, I really enjoyed your stories and I'm totally psyched to hear the full record. Again, we've heard the single, which is Back in the USSA. We'll have it linked through today's show notes, the YouTube video of it. But the full record drops just in a couple weeks, probably in about a week by the time we get this up, on July 7th. It's called Rub My Mind, out on Motorhead Music. And again, the band Barb Wire Dolls. We have been speaking with Pin Doll, the guitarist in the band. Pin, best of luck to you.
4: Thank you very much. Rock on, brother. Peace and peace. Thank you very much.
3: Okay, take care, man. Big thanks to Pin Doll for checking in with us here on Talking Metal. Thanks to Martin Popoff. Thanks to you guys for supporting what we do. Hope to see you in Nashville on August 26th. If you want to co-host a show, leave us a $75 donation on that GoFundMe page I mentioned earlier, gofundme.com slash rock, the letter N, pod expo, and uh, we'll hook it up. You don't have to go to Nashville to to co-host. We can do it via Skype, But what you do have to do is support what we're doing in Nashville with that $75 donation. I get not one penny of it. I'm paying for my own way out there, paying for my own hotel rooms. Uh, It's all just to support podcasting and what what these guys are doing. Chris from Decibel Geek has kind of spearheaded the whole thing. So, yeah, you know the drill. Let's support. Let's show some love, some podcasting love, and let's shake your blood here on Talking Metal. Until next time, guys. This is Lemmy on bass and vocals, Dave Grohl on guitar and drums, from 2004 off the ProBot album. This is Shake Your Blood. See you next time.